This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, the Prime Minister picked the ministers to form the top tier of her new government and she unveiled the most diverse cabinet we've ever had and said that we should all be proud of that. But some in the media raised awkward claims and questions about ethnicity trumping merit. Were they fair? We also hear from the creator of a new magazine on the market for rural women, which is made by rural women around the country. But first, Trump versus Biden was the big story this week for the world's media on Wednesday, followed closely by Trump versus democracy when the president challenged the result and called in the lawyers. Good evening. We're calling the US election America Decides. But, well, it still hasn't really. The race to the White House is too close to call. Donald Trump looks that was Samantha Hayes introducing News Hub at 6 on Wednesday night, and it's not often you hear a presenter admitting that their own branding for a big news event was actually wrong. But she wasn't wrong about politically divided Americans delivering an inconclusive result that day. Over on TVNZ1 30 minutes later, as Florida swung to Donald Trump, Jack Tame at Joe Biden's headquarters in Delaware told viewers, incredible democratic uncertainty was upon us, and he gave us the following refreshment advice. And uh, the news on the ground here is that when it comes to deadlines for how long we should be waiting to expect full, comprehensive, final results from those states, you better get comfortable. Honestly, put a, put a pot of coffee on. We might be here a whole lot longer than just tonight. They say in Pennsylvania it could take two days to get final results. But while News Hub and TVNZ broadcast live from 4pm till about 8.30 that night, CNN's host might have needed something stronger than coffee as they went round the clock waiting for a result that never came. Just before 6am local time, about 2am our time, CNN host Chris Cuomo was reduced to telling viewers this. All of these states that are in play matter, but... We need to know this or the rest of the analysis kind of falls by the wayside. So uh, we've run out of information, which means we've run out of analysis. Don, we're going to make some calls, see if we can get an official there to give us some kind of guidance. And his CNN co-host Don Lemon urged him to try and get further fuel to chuck into the analysis furnace. You're probably going to get a lot of hang-ups because people are they're working really hard, Chris, to try to get this vote in. I hope you don't get hang-ups, but, you know, this is nuts. And soon after, they did get a Secretary of State from Michigan, Jocelyn Benson, to pick up and appear on screen. But she told them, politely but firmly, you'll only get your information when it's good and ready and properly counted. Just to be clear, you know, I'm not uh, always the sharpest knife in the drawer. I've been up for a long time uh, since yesterday. Um, But I just want to make sure you said that you should have some idea by the end of the day. Uh, Well, no, that's not what I'm seeing. However, you know, a lot can happen in in the next few hours, right? And so we want to be mindful. We're counting every vote. That's what we can say. Now, since then, Jocelyn Benson has been sued personally by the Trump campaign, part of its legal drive to change the results. But while fresh, potentially decisive numbers were in short supply that night, so too was patience. And as CNN analyst Essie Cup pointed out, that's something Donald Trump isn't exactly famous for. I mean, who expected that he could sit through this patiently, politely, obediently as the results came in? I mean, of, co- of course he wasn't going to. That doesn't mean that we should hyperventilate just yet. It's close. It was going to be. We have to let this play out. 
that Donald Trump would declare victory early and without any justification was indeed predictable. Social media platforms had already hidden and tagged some of his tweets and posts in which he claimed victory on the grounds that they were false. And with that in mind, media executives had already been pondering in advance just what to do about broadcasting Trump's claims to millions and watching and listening on election night should he decide to lie or provoke trouble. Hayden Donnell looked at that in this week's Midweek Media Watch on election night itself last Wednesday. That's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website if you missed it, or you can get it from our podcast feed, available wherever you get your podcasts. Now here, Trump's bogus victory claims did get knocked off the air by TBNZ during its live coverage on Wednesday night. In the middle of that rambling Trump speech from the White House, described by CNN's Jim Acosta as reality challenged, TVNZ crashed out of it and into a real estate reality show from the UK. Ohio, a tremendous state, a big state. I love Ohio. This week, we're off to the country. Can't go to cricket this afternoon because it's raining. On the hunt for the good life. I'm just wondering where the chickens might go. So is that then a bold editorial decision to shield New Zealand viewers from Trump's misinformation? Well, not quite. After a couple of minutes, and with no explanation, TVNZ crashed back from Phil and Kirsty on location, 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 back to President Trump again. Pubs, parking and perfect condition. And I'm with paddleboarding Pip, who's looking for a picture-perfect property. Yeah, you're not getting to be in lovely Chester. I'm just... Add them to the list, OK? It's, it's a very sad, it's a very sad moment. To me, this is a very sad moment. And we will win this. And we, as far as I'm concerned, we already have won it. So I just want to thank you. And I want to thank all... And that wasn't the only clumsy cross of the night on TBNZ1. All right, we're going to take a little break. We're going to go actually... No, we're not going to take a break. We're going to keep going. But we're going to dip into the coverage from ABC, our broadcast partner. This is what's happening... At the moment, this is a Black Lives protest, a Black Lives Matter protest that we're observing here. Everyone's upbeat, carrying carrying instruments, which is much better than the alternative. And on another occasion, TVNZ went from live coverage featuring its man Jack Tame in Delaware to an ad break in which he also featured. This Business Insight is brought to you by Zero. New Zealand is a nation of small businesses, with more than half a million SMEs recording fewer than 20 employees. But with everything you need to juggle, sometimes running a small business can be an isolating experience. And so can watching the main man reporting a critical election campaign overseas suddenly appearing in sponsored content for business in the ad breaks. In the New Zealand Herald, critic Steve Braunius harshly said that both major TV channels looked like they were trying to cover the election on a budget of $7.50, presumably $7.50 each. But over on three, the News Hub special's flaws were editorial. And one, according to Steve Braunius, was having Paul Henry as a host. He was dismissive of the Democrats and an admirer of Trump's energy and style and what Paul Henry called his emotional honesty. Though quite why this might be a good thing in a president, Paul Henry didn't say, but he was far from the only Trump fan on the air that night on News Hub special. 
US Ambassador Scott Brown, a Trump appointee, beamed in from an embassy party, and he was his master's voice when he talked about the virus we got from China and how we would have to learn to live with it. So I'm a glass half full guy. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I don't think the sky is falling. That was a very presidential response. Scott, thank you for it. When you pack to leave the country, can you please leave the time for me? I love it. Well, Scott Brown was happy to talk to any media that night, including RNZ's Checkpoint special, on which he insisted there had been no effort to suppress voter turnout using the Postal Service. Later in the evening, News Hub called up Trump campaign adviser Steve Rogers from the US, and host Tom McRae asked him about Republican efforts to suppress the vote. The integrity of the election on a whole is in question. Uh, We have found thousands of ballots thrown in trash cans. We've had postal workers indicted uh, for uh, violating laws with regard to uh, ballots. And I mean, I could just go on and on and on. Well, he did go on and on and wound up blaming the US media for painting a false picture of Donald Trump. But it was those claims of dumped and destroyed postal ballots aired by many Republican supporters that have been scrutinised by many fact-checking outfits and the media and declared fake news pretty much every time. And soon after that, in the News Hub studio, as a counterpoint presumably to the pro-Democrat, pro-Biden pundit Tracy Barnett, News Hub welcomed Trump-supporting AUT law lecturer Amy Baker-Benjamin, who also said voter fraud was real and rife. But for the Republicans, what, what they want to avoid is that the Democrats, that all the, the, uh, the same-day-today ballots are counted. That gives the Democrats um, the ability to see how many mail ballots, mail, mail-in ballots they have to sort of ginny up yes. you know, in their warehouses to get into their victory. And, oh, let's, let's keep counting until we get the number. I mean, the fears are, 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 are on the other side. But then a Republican would say that. But while she was fairly measured in her comments on News Hub special, not so much Jessie Jane Duffy from the Women for Trump group talking to Susie Ferguson on RNZ's Morning Report on Thursday. The interview started badly. Let me just hang it up. I'm trying to talk to you. I'm getting ready to do a phone interview. That's what I was trying to tell you. Hi there, Jessie Jane. And then it all went downhill after that. That's okay. an insulting question. Okay, so, so don't you, present so you're it saying... like that, that you are trying to suggest. No, you not. You cannot ask me as an American to blame the president of the United States when you know that's not true. What did he do to stop it? For their deaths. You know that this came from China. No, you've got to listen or you don't have to talk to me. And option B, suggested there by Jessie Jane Duffy herself, really sounded like the best one for media planning on talking to partisans prone to amplifying misinformation when given the opportunity. And when President Trump, who was clearly sensing the electoral tide going out on him on Friday afternoon, sounded off in that 17-minute-long fact-free monologue about illegal votes, fraud and a stolen election, some of the US TV networks, for the first time, did take option B with him and cut off the president as he was speaking. Without tens of millions of unsolicited ballots, without any verification measures whatsoever. Well, we're interrupting this because what the president of the United States is saying in large part, is absolutely untrue. He began, and, and, and we're not going to allow it to keep going because it's not true. If they count the illegal votes, they're trying to steal the election. There is not a scintilla of evidence that this is true. None. There's only words here. 
There was Shepard Smith, a former host on Trump's favourite network, Fox News, but now with MSNBC. And after that, Shepard Smith embarked on a live five-minute fact-check contradicting several key claims President Trump made in just the first few minutes of that speech. And he concluded like this. No votes are being allowed after November the 3rd. In some states, they have to arrive by November the 3rd. But allegations of voter fraud, allegations of trying to steal the election, none of that is true. Not one word. Several other U.S. networks also curtailed the president when they heard what he had to say, but not Fox News or CNN, even though its mild-mannered and even-handed analyst John King who for hour after hour staffed the so-called magic wall of screens tracking the swings in the votes, addressed Donald Trump directly. And guess what, Mr. President? We're going to count the votes. And if they favor you, we're going to show that. And if they don't, we're going to show that. That's how democracy works. We're just counting votes. We're doing math as, as the honest people in all these voting centers. Where Kyung is here, if you're a Trump supporter, go online. Most of these places have cameras. All of them are posting their results. This is happening transparently. There are Democrats and the Republicans in every one of these rooms. If they see something wrong, they have every right to challenge it. But you have to prove it. You can't just say it. The day after our election, American journalists shared online video of News Hub political editor Tova O'Brien refusing to allow advance NZ party leader Jamie Lee Ross to spread misinformation about COVID-19 death rates. And they applauded her determination not to give him a platform for that and said that their networks could learn from it. And while it is interesting to hear from people who support a candidate who attracted about 70 million votes from Americans this week, they'd be disappointed to know that News Hub and others allowed Trump backers here to say, untrue things that they couldn't prove about electoral integrity and mostly without challenge. But even as the media networks one by one finally called Joe Biden the winner today, Donald Trump continued to claim the election was stolen, though by now fewer networks were paying that much attention. And the media will have to hold that line for a while yet. Donald Trump remains in office until next January, and the claims, misinformation and lawsuits will keep coming from Team Trump. He's already said reportedly that he'll only leave the White House kicking and screaming, though that really is something that many people would like to see on TV, as he finally moves to another location, location, location. While Donald Trump was energising his supporters with unsupportable claims of electoral fraud and scandalising the rest of the US at the same time, the final votes were of course yet to be counted. And soon after that, the final count in our election was revealed here. And that meant that two National Party MPs who seemed to have won on the night ended up in second place with no place in Parliament. One was Northland MP Matt King, who swiftly declared that he wanted a recount to be sure that the narrow margin no longer in his favour was actually correct. But having slept on it, he decided yesterday not to ask for one, and then called his rival candidate Willow Jean Prime to congratulate her, and then thank the people of Northland for the privilege of representing them. And while that was a bit of a contrast with what was going on in the White House, so too was the top tier of our government that was unveiled once our results were official. Now lots uh, of focus on the high number of of Māori in Cabinet, the diversity in Cabinet. Uh, This is clearly the most diverse cabinet we've ever had, surely. That was Morning Report's Corin Dan last Tuesday, the morning after Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern announced her new cabinet, raising one of the big talking points with RNZ's political editor, Jane Patterson. 
and the gender gap really starting to close up. Eight out of 20 in Cabinet are women, 13 out of the 28 in the broader executive, and five Māori in Cabinet. And not just in those Māori-specific portfolios, but across very senior portfolios. And Kelvin Davis taking on Oranga Tamariki, um, the Labour caucus flexing their mu- muscle and getting some really good positions, but there will be expectations on them to deliver in those areas. Poverty, housing, justice, corrections, you name it. And a few minutes later, Corin Dan had more questions about diversity at the top tier of our government for Grant Robertson, the brand new Deputy Prime Minister. There has been a lot made of the diversity of this cabinet. You will be the first, New Zealand's first openly gay Deputy Prime Minister. Is that important? Well, I think what's most important is that I do the job well, and that's what I've focused on over the last three years as Finance Minister. Um, I do that job on behalf of all New Zealanders. But I also think it's important for young people in the rainbow community to know that their sexuality is no barrier to them progressing. So from that perspective, um, I, I take that role as a role model seriously, but the job is fundamentally about working for all New Zealanders to deliver the programme we promised. Now, Grant Robertson's sexuality was an issue when he challenged for the party's leadership in the past, and some of the party's more conservative and religious members didn't support him. But apart from that question on Morning Report this week, it wasn't much of an issue. Now, in general terms, diversity in politics these days is a more sensitive issue. Incorporating it and demonstrating it has become increasingly important for any political party which claims the right to represent a country where people now come from a wide range of ethnic origins and social backgrounds. And with that in mind, it wasn't particularly surprising that Judith Collins made headlines when she said she wouldn't be considering diversity when she picked her new lineup after she became the National Party leader back in July. But when the votes were counted on October the 17th, National were left with just two Māori MPs and just one of Asian origin, Melissa Lee. And after the first caucus meeting post-election, Judith Collins changed her tune on diversity when reporters raised the issue again. And we're absolutely um, going to be very focused on making sure that we take use of, make use of the very kind offers of assistance we've had today. Now, by contrast, the Labour and Green MPs we've just elected are a more diverse bunch, and some in the media were beating the drum for more at the top tier of government too. For example, the morning after the election, Stuff's Māori Affairs correspondent Carmen Parahi wrote that that was the only way to start fixing serious social inequities, and she singled out one MP for promotion like this. Labour's Māori MPs need to demand more ministerial roles and seek to put Peony Henare in as a health minister. He earned his stripes during the last term as an associate health minister. Pini Hinara himself then seemed to take the advice, putting his hand up for the job in an Instagram post, which curiously vanished after just a couple of days online. And that prompted Heather Duplessy-Allen on her News Talk ZB Drive show to call a health minister from a previous national-led government, Jonathan Coleman. Jonathan, give me your verdict. If you were in charge of these appointments, would you give him the job? No. Jonathan Coleman went on to say that Pini Henare actually might be a good minister after all. You know, it may be, well be a risk worth taking. I mean, she will see a lot of Pini Henare behind the scenes, which none of the rest of us have seen. But look, he's been a very competent uh, minister. He's a smart guy. And if he can get that portfolio and make a success, that will see his stakes rocket. But it's also high risk for him as well. Now, that was a pretty measured assessment, really, from a former political foe. But News Talk ZB put it online with the headline... Jonathan Coleman, there's great risk if Henare becomes health minister. And on 9 to Noon's politics slot the same week, right-leaning pundit Brigitte Morton also said the Prime Minister shouldn't pick Pini Henare for health minister. He may be a safe pair of hands in terms of how he operates, but people don't know who he is. Yeah.
As an associate health minister during the last term of government, he helped to establish a new Māori health authority. He dealt with whānau order issues and civil defence disasters as emergency management minister. A Māori minister who is better known to the public, though, is Kelvin Davis, the Labour Party deputy who won't become Jacinda Ardern's deputy prime minister this term because, he says, he told her he didn't want that job. But even before that, plenty of pundits in the media were saying he shouldn't have the job, including Tim Beveridge on News Talk ZB's Weekend Collective show. He clearly isn't the second most talented um, MP in the Labour Party, and the only reason he's number two is tokenism. So is that really the reason, the way we should be electing, um, choosing our Deputy Prime Minister? The Prime Minister told reporters this. This is a cabinet and an executive that is based on merit, who also happen to be incredibly diverse, and I'm proud of that. And her pick as the first ever female and Māori Minister of Foreign Affairs then told NewsHub this. I hope that many other women of uh, Māori descent, mixed descent uh, across New Zealand will see this as uh, lifting the ceiling once again. But that was not how former ACT MP Stephen Frank saw it as a guest on the panel on RNZ National that same day. Our whole politics is now about creating diversity shop windows and... uh, I think her real problem was she just had a very poor um, pool because there is so much diversity now in politics instead of competence. Stephen Franks insisted this was a matter of principle and not personal, but he then backed up his opinion with personal experience of the new Foreign Affairs Minister, Nanaya Mahuta. But I imagine because we're in COVID, there won't be a great deal of, of travel and the Prime Minister, thankfully has got the security responsibility, so mostly I, I think she'll probably do the Was job. it because she also, uh, the Prime Minister, said she demonstrated an extraordinary ability to communicate across peoples? And one of the things you I was just telling yeah. you that I was in a committee where she never communicated with anyone. And it turned out Stephen Franks wasn't the only one in the media saying that Naya wouldn't have got the job of foreign minister if she'd been able to travel to foreign countries. Jacinda Ardern has managed to get another member of the Māori caucus into Cabinet. She's cunningly done it at a time when the borders are closed, so the foreign minister won't be going anywhere for a while, so kind of low risk, hopefully. That was News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy-Allen on her drive show last Monday. Now, even if foreign ministers can't travel overseas, the job can, of course, be done using modern communications and meeting people face-to-face here who represent other countries. They're called ambassadors. And that issue came up again on the same show when Heather Duplessy-Allen chatted to News Talk ZB political editor Barry Soper on Monday about how the Prime Minister had juggled the demands of the Māori caucus. With Nechim Penny Hinare uh, in um, defence, that's a big portfolio. Mm. So I think, yeah, I think she's traded them well. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Jeez, uh, Nanaya in foreign foreign affairs. What can you do? But at least, as I said earlier, um, gates are closed to the country, so probably we're safe. We've, we've got her here for now, so low risk, very low risk. News Talk ZB's political editor Barry Soper did point out Nanaya Mahuta had been on Labour's front bench since Helen Clark was a Prime Minister and she was an Associate Minister of Trade in this past term. Though Heather Duplessy-Allen then went further in her daily editorial saying Nanaya Mahuta only got the role because Kelvin Davis didn't get the Deputy Prime Ministership. It is a loss for the very strong and very pushy Māori caucus. So regardless of the real reason, that would have created quite the balancing act for Ardern who would likely have had to compensate them for this, right?
So according to some of the pundits lately, National failed because they ended up with too few Māori MPs and too little diversity. But put crudely, some of the same pundits are now saying Labour left themselves open to over-promoting Māori MPs because they have too many. And as we've heard, Heather Duplessis-Allen is not the only one who seems to think that. Should media pundits be free to say if they think a new minister is the wrong person for the job? Well, of course, but Māori ministers also deserve not to be discounted just because of their ethnicity before they've even started in their jobs. The new elevated role for Nanaia Mahuta in Cabinet will also have an knock-on effect on the Māori media, ironically not much mentioned by the media when focusing on her unexpected ascension in foreign affairs. She will no longer be the Minister for Māori Development, and in that portfolio she oversaw a long and ultimately inconclusive review of Māori media. Now as part of that, Nanaia Mahuta proposed in June this year the creation of a single state-funded broadcast news service to feed all Māori TV, radio and online platforms. And it was an idea that met with strong criticism from journalists and media outlets alike who all complained it would reduce variety and choice in Māori broadcast news. Now in this, they had an ally in the government, Associate Māori Development Minister Willie Jackson, a broadcaster before he became an MP, and also the former Chief Executive of Radio Watea, the station run by the Monaco Urban Māori Authority, of which he was formerly the chair. And in the new cabinet, he's now the Minister of Māori Development, so don't expect to see that single news service proposal reappear any time soon. Meanwhile, his cabinet colleague Chris Farfoy has retained his broadcasting and digital media portfolio. And before the election, Chris Farfoy said that he intended to pursue a new public media entity to replace state-owned TBNZ and RNZ. And he also told the main journalist union Air2, just before the election, that Labour would deliver a contestable fund for public interest journalism, which would pay out $75 million over three years. Now this is a proposal that's excited non-broadcast news media who've never had anything like that sort of money from the taxpayer to call on before. But after the 2017 election, Labour's promise of $38 million more million a year for public media never came to pass, even though it was there in the manifesto. So media executives will be reading next month's briefing to the incoming minister as closely as the minister himself. Last weekend on Media Watch, we looked at how the magazine business was taking an exciting new shape as some of the magazines which vanished during the COVID crisis six months ago return and brand new ones appear on the shop shelves from new publishers, some of them run by editors and journalists who lost their jobs during the COVID crisis. One of them was Cedo Kitchen, a former editor of Women's Day and the New Zealand Woman's Weekly, who's now in charge of the new fortnightly magazine Woman, which is just one of four new titles on the market now from a new company, School Road Publishing. And if you missed our chat with her about all that, it's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, or you can catch an extended version of it on our podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts. And while we were talking, Cedo Kitchen praised another new magazine called Shepherdess, dedicated to connecting and inspiring women across rural New Zealand by offering a place to share their stories. Shepherdess is an absolute delight. She definitely has um, seen a gap in the market, and I think that will definitely grow. 
Shepherd S is a quarterly publication recently commended in the category Best COVID Response in the 2020 New Zealand Magazine Awards. It's edited by Christy McGregor, who runs things from her family's farm in Horofenua, a long way from the beating heart of the publishing industry and the advertising and media buying businesses that are their lifeblood. But while she's a relative novice when it comes to publishing high-end magazines, she isn't when it comes to telling the stories of rural women. I guess it's and it's from my own experience of moving from you know Australia to here and you know now being on a you know intergenerational family farm and uh, talking to women here in rural areas, understanding what life was like for them. Um, that I saw that there wasn't really anything in the magazine world that was really targeted at that demographic and uh, telling life as it is and sharing stories of real stories of rural life and relatable women. And, you know, there's some other projects that we're working on at the moment too that are other vehicles like through events or we're working on a storytelling project that sort of feed into. So the magazine is one one part of that, of, of achieving that purpose, I guess. Um, yeah, we do really want to to make sure it's a whole of New Zealand magazine and even in terms of like pricing of subscriptions and things. So people, when you're in a rural delivery you go to buy something and you get slapped a, you know, extra charge for rural delivery. But it, the ethos is that um, this is accessible to just as or more accessible to women in those remote spots than it is in Auckland or Wellington. Yeah, and I guess in the same way that, um, you know, we want that geographic diversity um, in the stories that we collate or curate, but also cultural diversity as well. So ensuring that Maori and Pacifica, for example, um, stories are reflected in the magazine is really, really important to us. And yeah, it's, it's, it's clear what you say there. So even the subheading uh, under the masthead, it's uh, Nga Te Wahine Mō Te Whenua, from the women for the land. That story about um, Pania Te Paiho Marsh um, from Wahine Toa Hunting. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, a story like that, um, you know, I sort of talk about it in the editor's letter there, but, you know, when the first thought of some, you know, hunting is not something that I'm really to be honest, I still don't quite understand um, about New Zealand culture, being an Australian. Um, but then when you peel back, um, like with Panya's story, there's so many layers to it and, um, you know, giving women skill, skills and resources to, um, you know, be self-sufficient and those sorts of things. So, yeah, that's an example of that. The magazine was recently recognised in the 2020 Magazine Awards in that category of um, Best COVID Response. In a way, seeing as it is such a nimble thing, you're doing it from the farm and it's being done by a network of people, you know, clearly using digital networks around the country, you know, who are not in the big centres, maybe yours was actually a kind of COVID-proof production. Yeah, it was a bit of a challenge. I mean, all the places that you anticipate um, getting something like this out there, um, obviously, were then off the table. You know, people are at home now. How do we connect with people at home? And I guess it did force us, like you say, to be nimble. We had to cancel our, our launch. And, you know, when we were going to do that physical launch, it was going to be at a little um, converted butcher shop in Rongatea, which is a small little village in the Manawatu, we ended up doing an um, online launch and we had 
over 300 women joined the online launch from all over the country. So yeah, it did force us to think outside the box a bit and not in, not in a bad way. So we did some things um, which were really sort of popular. We, um, through our Instagram page, we did a rural road reach. And so we, we offered sort of 10 roads around the country, the opportunity to sort of nominate themselves for um, getting a bundle of magazines sent that they could share with the neighbours, you know, um, to kind of lift spirits during, during that COVID period. So it's just been a constant adaption, I guess, as we've, as we've gone. Yeah. Please don't take this the wrong way, but seeing as you've said you weren't an experienced magazine publisher, and when I received it, I was surprised at how fancy it was. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I I mean, to be honest, I expected something that might be a bit less uh, professional, but I mean, this is something of the quality that, I mean, people who subscribe to... New Zealand Geographic magazines like that, they would not turn their nose up at the quality of, of the production at all. Yeah, absolutely. That's been um, really key right throughout. And obviously, you know, there's a there's a cost to that in terms of, you know, an investment, you know, in, say, paper stock. Um, you can go for a cheap paper stock and get a crap outcome or you can, you know, invest in a, you know, nice paper stock and, and have the product where you want to pick it up or want to leave it on your coffee table. You know, I guess I'm a bit fussy, but... Um, there's no point doing it unless you're going to do it well is sort of, yeah, how I approach it. Well, you mentioned earlier that uh, you had an experience in Australia before you came to New Zealand telling the stories of rural women there. And indeed, that was a multimedia uh, enterprise. Um, it's online videos, women telling their stories. Um, women of, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Yaraka? Yaraka, yep. Yaraka, Yaraka. beg your pardon, Yaraka. This, you've now <laughs> adapted this. So this is the next stage, isn't it, for you? You have uh, a bit of support to uh, launch um, a kind of multimedia uh, project that will be, I guess, associated with the magazine. But uh, this is rural women telling their own stories in their own voices. After doing the project in Queensland, Outback Queensland, seven years ago, sort of have a bit of a model that we could adapt. So we're, we're doing a um, project with starting with the Horofanua, Um at the moment um, called Our Voices and we're gathering the stories um, and portraits of 20 women in the Horofanua, not the women that are on the front page of the paper or, you know, have already got interest from other districts wanting to do it. So we'll look at expanding to other places. And we've currently seen uh, the spring autumn and winter editions, uh, so it's quarterly publication, Shepherdess, and I think the deadline coming up for uh, the summer edition, uh, but as you mentioned earlier, uh, a deadline of your own around about the same time. <laughs> yeah, just so happens that the on date that the magazine lands on shelves, which is Thursday the 3rd of December, um, is the same day that my second baby is due, so I'm just hoping that the baby stays in long enough to get the magazine off to the printer. If it doesn't, then we'll just have to have to make do. I'm sure subscribers would be understanding if there was had to be any delay to that. Best of luck with it, and I hope um, everybody meets their deadlines on time. <laughs> Thanks, Colin. That was Christy McGregor, the editor and publisher of the quarterly magazine for rural women, Shepherdess. And you can find out more about that and where to get it on its website, shepherdess.co.nz, where there are also details of the flock-ins, or online meetings that connect readers with the subjects of the stories in the magazine. And there are also details there of Christie's Our Voices Storytelling Project, which we talked about there briefly, which will see 20 women in Horofenua sharing their stories through portraiture, the written word and audio. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but the Media Watch team will be back with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night on The Lately Show with Karen Hay, and then back again for more Media Watch at the same time next Sunday 
here on RNZ National.